Scripture reading will be 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10 through 16. 1 Corinthians 7, 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not send his wife away. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy." Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? I will pray. Heavenly Father, we again do thank you for your word in that you have given us this as a revelation of yourself, that we might know you, and that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. God, we, we do want to again just um, be yielded to you, and that you would minister to us, speak to us, God, as we need, and that we would be just yielded, Lord, in all of our being to what you have said and what your will for us is. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when I was um, in junior high, I think it was, um, I had a severe problem with allergies and eczema. So did one of my younger brothers. And every week, for I don't know how long, many months, we had to ride our bicycles over to the doctor's office, which is about a mile from our house, maybe a little less, and endure three very painful shots. Two in the left arm, one in the right arm. And every week, the shots became more painful because the dosage was increased. Um, It was extremely painful. As we rode our bikes away from the doctor's office, we could only put the one arm, the right arm, it had only one shot administered on the handlebar. We couldn't even lift the left arm and pedal home. And it would take almost the whole week to get over it, and then we'd have to go back again for another round. It was not a pleasant experience. For that reason, I've been breaking up Chapter 7. (laughs) I appreciate Connor being here to give us a little relief from two weeks ago when we introduced chapter 7, and now we're back on this very difficult section on divorce and remarriage, and so I'm going to take a break for about a year after this, (laughs) let you get over the pain, and then we'll get back to chapter 7. I'm kidding. There is no subject anywhere in Scripture that is more difficult and painful to talk about than divorce and remarriage. And um, if I could avoid any topic, it would be this one. I seriously did think about asking Connor last week just to continue to where I left off so he could enjoy the pain of this passage. Uh, 
I didn't do that to him. Didn't want to, didn't want to lose him from being on staff with us. Um, this isn't the first time that I've had to talk on this topic. We've also, a few years back, went through the Gospel of Matthew. And there are two passages in Matthew, as you know, that um, deal very um, clearly with the subject of divorce and remarriage. And so you can't preach books of the Bible and avoid things like this. But it is very, very much on my heart, and I'll just say it from the outset, that um, one, I don't, do not in any way want to come across as unloving, uncharitable, without understanding, um, or to communicate in any way that someone who has been divorced and remarriage is somehow put on a shelf, not used anymore, that their life with God is over, ministry is over. I don't believe any of those things. And I know that just by virtue of what I do believe, and many of you already know, that there are folks who run with that and will impose upon me and others who hold the belief that I do something that I don't believe. Just recently, I was having lunch with a, with a good friend, and, um, and this subject came up, and um, his um, son has been divorced and remarried, and, and, and this good friend just assumed, because of my position, which he's aware of, that I felt that his son could have no ministry in the church whatsoever. I don't believe that. I believe that, that there are limitations that come to our life because of our choices. But I do not for a minute believe that God is restrained in the ministry that he can have through us because of choices that we've made including divorce and remarriage. In other words, I don't believe that divorce and remarriage, or put it this way, I don't believe that having never been divorced is what qualifies a person for ministry. Ministry is based upon humility, brokenness, and availability to the Lord Jesus. And ministry is much, much broader than standing in a pulpit and preaching on Sunday morning. Much, much broader. And I absolutely believe that. There are a number of you here in this congregation who have been divorced and remarried. And quite honestly, you're some of the finest people I've ever met in my life. And your lives minister to me constantly. And I am deeply grateful for each of you. I wish that many times I had the love for the Lord and the intimacy with Christ that I see in your lives. And when I need people to pray for me, you are some of the first people that I think of because I so respect you and your walks with Jesus. So I want you to understand that from the outset. I truly believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that the choices that we've made or which we've been subject to weren't even our choice, but maybe our spouse's choice, do not hinder us from having great intimacy with Jesus and great ministry as he is free to operate through us. But looking at the text here, beginning in verse 10, but to the married, so Paul has been talking to the unmarried and to widows in these verses leading up to verse 10. So now he's changing his, his audience a bit and he's saying, but to the married 
I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. And all he means by that phrase, not I, but the Lord, is that what he's about to say is something that Jesus has already spoken to. Okay? Jesus didn't cover everything about divorce and remarriage. But there are some things that Jesus did speak to. So this tells us that Jesus, would, that Paul would have been aware of at least one of the three Gospels that address this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John never touches on this topic. But Matthew does twice, five, chapter 5 and chapter 19, and Mark and Luke do as well. If, we were, if I wanted to do a, a great, um, you know, a, a total comprehensive exposition of this topic, we would have to look at Genesis 2, Deuteronomy 24, Malachi 2, Matthew 5 and 19, Mark 10, Luke 16, Romans 7, as well as 1 Corinthians 7. This happens to be the last passage of many passages in the Bible that speak of divorce and remarriage. So what did Jesus say? The last half of verse 10, that the wife should not leave her husband. Now we need to be a little more particular, precise with this. When you read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5 and chapter 19, there is no mention of the wife leaving her husband. We believe it's because Matthew is the only Gospel written exclusively to a Jewish audience. And under Jewish law, a wife, a woman, could not divorce her husband. So when you read Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, there is nothing in there that speaks about a woman divorcing her husband. It is all about a husband divorcing his wife. Jewish law did not permit women to initiate a divorce. They could be the victim of a divorce, and many were, but no, one, no woman could initiate it. And by the way, we believe that the reason that God did that under Jewish law is because it's a picture, marriage is designed to be a picture of our relationship with Him. And by that law being in place that only the husband could initiate a divorce and not the wife, it tells us that we, the bride of Christ, cannot divorce ourselves from Jesus. It's a very powerful picture. And guess what? He who could divorce himself will not divorce himself from us. So Hebrews says, I will never leave you, and I will never, never forsake you. So this is really when it says, Jesus spoke and said a wife should not leave her husband. Paul cannot be drawing from Matthew. He must be drawing from either Mark or Luke, which speaks to this. So if you would, very quickly with me, look at Mark, Mark chapter 10. Whenever... One of the epistles makes a reference to another portion of Scripture, whether Old Testament or to the Gospels, we should look it up and see what is exactly being said. So, in Mark chapter 10, we read in verse 11, And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Very, very clear statements. No compromise. Nothing here that, that would lessen um, 
the directness of what Jesus is saying. If a man divorces his wife and marries another woman, he commits adultery against his first wife. If a woman divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery against her first husband. Which begs the question, why is remarriage considered adultery by Jesus? And it gets to the two words that we have often heard marriage described at, as, but which we seldom use anymore. Marriage is permanent. And marriage is indissoluble. This is what God intended. Just as his covenant relationship with us is permanent and cannot be dissolved, so our relationship with each other, married, husband and wife, is also permanent and cannot be dissolved. So when a divorce and a remarriage take place, Jesus is very clear that the remarriage is an act of adultery against the first spouse. That is what Paul is drawing from in 1 Corinthians 7.10, where he says, the Lord Jesus said that the wife should not leave her husband. Specifically, should not divorce. But if she does leave, because divorces do take place. And again, it's interesting that Paul begins with the wife under the inspiration of Scripture, this is not, um, and he does so because he's writing to both Jews and Gentiles. And in the Gentile world, as I've said, women could initiate divorces. In our world today, most divorces are initiated by women. The last statistic I heard on it was 70% of divorces are initiated by women. If the woman does leave her husband, Paul says in verse 11, she is to remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not send his wife away. And the same would apply. If the man divorces his wife, he is also to remain unmarried or else be reconciled to his wife. I want you to understand, this is very, very important. There is nothing that the scripture tells us to do that is in any way contradictory to who God is. Everything, to put it this way, everything God tells us to do is an outflow of who he is. We must remember we have been created in the image of God. And we are here on this earth to image who he is. Everything he says about marriage, divorce, and remarriage is designed to be a picture of who he is. I'm aware that one of the reasons that this subject is so painful is because if we take it at face value, and I believe that we should take it at face value, the only options after a divorce is to be unmarried or to be reconciled. And reconciliation may not be a possibility. And therefore, it seems that we are dooming people to a life of loneliness. 
I understand that pain. I cannot agree that it is dooming someone. Because I happen to believe that when we, by faith, yield our lives to him and are obedient to him because we love him and want to reflect him, that God, we are not doomed, but that the relationship with God can become sweeter and more intimate than anything else we could have known. We need to look at a couple Old Testament passages. If you know your Bibles, we know, you will know that there is one occasion in the Bible, at least, where God speaks of divorcing Israel. And yet I just said that to divorce and remarry would not be consistent with the character of God. So if you would look with me at Jeremiah chapter 3. Isaiah, Jeremiah, chapter 3, and picking it up in verse 6. Jeremiah 3, 6. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king of the, Josiah the king, have you seen the faithless Israel, what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. And I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. So God divorced Israel. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. But I want you to read this in context. If you'll go down to verse 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say the north would be Israel. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger. For I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity. And then if you'll go over to Isaiah 54, turn back a few pages to Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 5. Isaiah 54, 5. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you. Verse 10, the middle of the verse, for the, my loving kindness will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken. So what is the Lord saying when he says, I divorced Israel? He's saying because of Israel's harlotry, her spiritual adultery, 
He said, enough is enough. And he distanced himself from her. More accurate than divorce would be he separated himself for the sake of reconciliation. He never broke covenant. He is emphatic on that. God cannot break covenant. That is the assurance of our own salvation. If God can break, break covenant, we cannot be certain of our own salvation because all of us have sinned against him. All of us have played the harlot spiritually. But God keeps covenant, and though he separated himself from Israel, he did not break covenant, and that separation was for the sake of reconciliation, which fits exactly with what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7. I should also note that in Matthew, when, when Joseph understood that Mary was pregnant, it said he considered divorcing her. They weren't even married. But the same word that's used for put away is the same word that's used by Paul to divorce and which is what Joseph was considering. So there is, divorce, my point is, is not as we always use it, meaning that a marriage comes to an end which permits a remarriage to follow. I believe you never see divorce used that way in Scripture. It is used of Joseph, who is breaking a betrothal. It is used of God, who is separating himself from his sinful bride for the sake of reconciliation. But I do not see divorce used in Scripture anywhere where it permits a remarriage. That is a definition we have come up with that is not in Scripture. Having addressed the wife, he addresses the husband. What is true for the wife is also true of the husband. There's not a double standard. And now he moves to another issue, verse 12. But to the rest, I say, well, who are the rest? Well, he's talked about single people. He's talked about widows. He's talked about Christians who are married, who are having difficulty, who perhaps have even gone through a divorce. Who are the rest? Well, the rest is those people who are married to an unbeliever. And he says, I need to address that too. To the rest, I say, not the Lord. So what does that mean? Jesus never talked about this. So he's not saying this is not inspired scripture. He is not saying he is speaking without the authority of God. He is saying, I'm going to introduce a topic now that you will not find in the Gospels. Jesus never talked about a mixed faith marriage where a believer is married to an unbeliever. So Paul says, I'm venturing into an area now that Jesus never mentioned. But that doesn't mean he is not speaking with the authority of God. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and once again, this is very unusual. So Paul seems to just want to turn things around and, and put the unusual first. And so here, the reason I say it's unusual is because if you think about the marriages that you know where the one is a Christian and the other is not, in the vast majority of instances, it is the woman who is the Christian and the husband who is not. But Paul says, if there is any man, a brother, who has a wife who is not a believer... And she consents to live with him. Let him not send her away. 
not divorce her. In other words, a mixed faith marriage is not grounds for divorce. Should it have taken place? No. Assuming that it was a mixed faith relationship from the very beginning, a believer marrying an unbeliever, it should have never happened. Scripture is emphatic on this, that, that the unequally yoked, the unequal in faith should not be yoked together, 2 Corinthians 6 and 7. But it happens. Sometimes it happens because two unbelievers get married and one of them becomes a Christian. Didn't start out being an unequally yoked marriage, but it has become that. What should you do? And Paul's words are very clear. Don't divorce. A mixed faith marriage is not grounds for divorce. If a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. If a woman has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. Why this back and forth? I'm speculating here, but I think I'm on good grounds. Why does Paul say, if the woman, if the man, if the man, if the woman? Why? I mean, we would understand if it's true for the husband, it's true for the wife. It's true for the wife, it's true for the husband, right? But he's being very particular here. It's as though he understands that in our sinful hearts that we are always looking for an exception. That if Paul had only said, wives, don't leave your husbands, and there'd be men out there saying, well, I can leave my wife, because Paul didn't say that a man can't leave his wife. Right? That's how we are. And so it's like Paul is, is anticipating all the different routes that we would run to to try and escape what he's saying. And he's shutting the door on each of those routes. Which raises the question, if Paul believed that divorce can, and it, that remarriage after divorce is a legitimate option, then why didn't he say so? Because he's anticipating everything else here. And he never says that remarriage is an, is a, an appropriate, legitimate option after divorce. Verse 14. For if the unbelieving husband, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that if you are married to an unbeliever, that person is automatically a Christian or will automatically become a Christian. Look at verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? So you can be sanctified and not be saved. See what Paul's saying? The, the husband's not saved, but he is sanctified. If you are a Christian married to an unbeliever, then your unbelieving spouse is sanctified. In the temple, every piece of furniture had to be sanctified. But furniture can't be saved. But furniture can be set aside for the purpose of God. And you think about it. Who is more likely to hear the gospel and to come to faith? A person who's married to a Christian or a person who has no contacts with Christians? And in that sense, the person who is married to a Christian is in a privileged position to be able to hear 
the gospel and respond. That's all Paul's saying. He's saying, don't give up on their salvation. God can use you to see them get saved. They are in a privileged, sanctified position. As far as the children, they are holy. And again, he's using it not in the sense that they are saved, but they are in a privileged, sanctified, set-apart position where it's much more likely for them to see the gospel lived out and to hear the gospel when they have a Christian mom or dad than if they don't. That's all Paul's saying. For the sake of their salvation, don't divorce. But what if the divorce takes place? If the unbelieving one, verse 15, leaves, let him leave. Our society no longer considers marriage to be a covenant. At best, it's considered a contract. But if you know anything about law, and I am no lawyer, but if you know anything about law, there is no contract that can be broken as easily as marriage can be broken. It is no, no longer a covenant legally. And it is no longer a contract legally. As one person I read recently said, the wedding vows legally mean nothing today. Because either of those two people can walk away for no reason whatsoever. You can stand before a court and tell that judge, I just want out. Well, what are your reasons? I just want out. Divorce granted. That is what no-fault divorce means. And when you can leave a marriage for any reason and no reason, then legally speaking, your wedding vows mean nothing. It is less than a contract, whatever that would be. Now, I'm not saying before God it means nothing. And I would hope that those two people, when they give their vows, it means everything. But in a court of law, today, it means nothing. And it is a sad fact that today, just as it was in Rome when Paul was writing this, people can leave for no reason whatsoever. I came across one writer, and he said that when Paul was writing this, it was not uncommon for people in the Roman society to be dating years according to their husbands' names. And that we know of, of several Roman women who were young, in their, in their not even middle age yet, and had already been married 10, 15, and one had been married over 20 times. Therefore, Paul has to say, if the unbelieving one leaves... Let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. And so that phrase, not under bondage, is the big boogaloo here. Okay? Because we go, all right, Charlie, that sure makes it sound like that if you are married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves, then you are free to remarry. But there's big problems with that. Not the least, Paul has just said when two Christians are married and one Christian leaves, you remain single or get reconciled. Mixed marriages, unbelieving marriages 
are not less marriages than Christian marriages. I hope you understand that. God doesn't have two sets of rules, one for the Christian and one for the unbeliever. All people are to be faithful in their marriages, whether you're saved or not. All people are to tell the truth. No one is to be guilty of coveting, murder, stealing. God's law is true of all people, saved or not. And when two unbelievers get married, they are just as married as two Christians. And when a Christian marries an unbeliever, they are just as married as two Christians that are married. And so what God says to the Christian is also true for the unbeliever. But there's other here, just to get more exegetical on you. The word for bound here is not a legal term. So he's not talking to the legal aspects of marriage. You are no longer legally obligated. It's talking about a responsibility, but not a legality. Totally different word used in verse 39. So if you skip to the end of the chapter, chapter 7, verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. If verse 15 is saying that there is no bondage and you can remarry, then Paul is presenting not only a contradiction with verse 11, but he is presenting a, a clear contradiction with verse 39. So what is the lack of bondage? Read it in the sense of responsibility. Read it in the context of what he's just been talking about. Don't walk away from a mixed faith marriage for the sake of the salvation of your husband and children. But if your unbelieving husband walks away from you, there's nothing you can do about it. So you don't need to live with the guilt that you destroyed a marriage when he walked away and nothing could prevent it. I believe that's all Paul's saying. He's not saying you have the freedom to remarry. He's saying you have the freedom from guilt and condemnation of that person not getting saved. You're not responsible for the salvation of somebody you're not even in relationship with. You've got to just give that up. I believe that's all Paul's saying. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? That's the context of not being under bondage. It is the ob obligation, responsibility of evangelization of your unbelieving family members. That's all he's talking about. Now, we could look at all the other passages. I'm not going to do that to you. That would be worse than three shots. But I would ask you, and I trust in a spirit of gentleness and respect, to consider three things. In whatever convictions you come to concerning divorce and remarriage. But before telling you those three things, I want to read to you from someone that is more um, everything than me. Smarter, erudite, better writer, better thinker. And that's 
um, John Piper. I am not a fan of John Piper's theology with his strong reform, strong covenant position. Um, I cannot agree with him on many things. But when he has, what he says concerning divorce and remarriage, I was so glad to come across this paper. You can get it on the internet, divorce and remarriage, a position paper, and, and he says at the end of it, no charge, you can have it, you can distribute it, you can quote it, and I appreciate that he's done that. There is probably no subject that, that I have mulled over, stewed over, agonized over than this subject of divorce and remarriage. I think it'd be fair to say I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours in the course of, of my life studying this, thinking on it, agonizing over it. And there is nobody that is immune from this. It is in my family, and it is a very, very painful thing. So I was heartened to come across another dinosaur like myself, because when it comes to this subject, I feel like a dinosaur. I honestly do. And when I read his position paper, I'm going, thank you, Jesus, because it, it, it comforted me, encouraged me that here's a guy that on every single point that he writes on, I can agree with him. That doesn't happen very often. And he and I are not the only two, by the way. But because this is such a hard topic to talk about, honestly, many pastors don't talk about it. And they hold the same exact position that I hold to. But they won't talk about it because they're afraid of the repercussions, as I am. So let me just read you some of what Piper says. All of my adult life, until I was faced with the necessity of dealing with divorce and remarriage in the pastoral context, I held the prevailing Protestant view that remarriage after divorce was biblically sanctioned in cases where divorce had resulted from desertion or persistent adultery. Only when I was compelled some years ago in teaching through the Gospel of Luke to deal with Jesus' absolute statement in Luke 16, 18, did I begin to question that inherited position. Now, I would say this. My, my initial experience was exactly the opposite of his. He started his ministry from the position that divorce and remarriage are sometimes permitted. That's not how I started my ministry. In fact, I can remember being in seminary, and we studied um, pretty carefully these words in the Gospels and in 1 Corinthians and in Romans concerning divorce and remarriage. And the professor made the observation that every year, year after year, after students sit down and dig into the Greek and look at this in quite depth, 80% of the current students at Dallas Seminary come to the unequivocal position, remarriage is permitted only for death. 80%. At the time that I was there, and the professor said that was true year after year, 80% of the students said, after studying the scriptures, the only time God sanctions remarriage is when the spouse has died. And then the professor said this. He says, five years from now, after you guys have gotten out in your pastorates, that ratio is going to completely reverse. And 80% of you men are now are going to five years from now saying that remarriage is permitted after divorce. And only 20% of you are going to say that it is not. And so my experience was a little different than how Piper started out with his. 
He continues, I felt an immense burden in having to teach our congregation what the revealed will of God is in this matter of divorce and remarriage. I was not unaware that among my people there were those who had been divorced and remarried and those who had been divorced and remain unmarried and those who are in the process of divorce or contemplating it as a possibility. I knew that this was not an academic exercise, but would immediately affect many people very deeply. I was also aware of the horrendous statistics in our own country as well as other Western countries concerning the number of marriages that were ending in divorce and the number of people who were forming second and third marriages. In my study of Ephesians 5, I became increasingly persuaded that there is a deep and profound significance to the union of husband and wife in one flesh as a parable of the relationship between Christ and his church. All of these things conspired to create a sense of solemnity and seriousness as I weighed the meaning and the implication of the biblical text on divorce and remarriage. The upshot of that crucial experience was the discovery of what I believe is a New Testament prohibition of all remarriage except in the case where a spouse has died. I do not claim to have seen or said the last word on this issue, nor am I above correction should I prove to be wrong. I am aware that men more godly than I have, than I have taken different views. Nevertheless, every person and church must teach and live according to the dictates of its own conscience informed by a serious study of Scripture. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Piper's wrong. Three things I have to consider. Personally, and I would hope you would consider these things. As you reach a very, very important decision on what you believe concerning divorce and remarriage, I usually call these three things to consider three hurdles. That is too much of an understatement. These are not hurdles. These are alps. All three of these things have to be removed in my humble estimation, for divorce and remarriage to be biblical. The first is what I've already spoken to, the character of God himself. The character of God. He will not leave us or forsake us. He will not break covenant. He will not lie. And he will not allow our sin, which he has paid for, to separate us from him. The scripture says that the word of God endures forever and shall not fail. We need to understand that the character of God is what informs everything that God says. We need to understand that God's commitment to you and me is not necessarily what you and I are committed to, is it? What are we really committed to? Is it what Jesus is committed to? Mystery of Godliness, our students at His Hill are reading it this semester by Ian Thomas. The first chapter is all about what God is committed to. And as the title would suggest, godliness. God being seen in you and me. This is why the resurrected Jesus Christ is not in heaven. He is in you and me. And I don't mean that he's not in heaven. I mean 
he's not just in heaven. He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven that he might indwell you and me. That his life would be reproduced, evidenced, imaged, magnified, manifest in you and me. He is committed to this. Am I committed to what he is committed to? As I look at the character of God, who will not break covenant, for me it's the end of the story, end of discussion. This is an alp that cannot be leaped over, cannot be set aside. God cannot will for me, permit for me to do what is contrary to himself. God doesn't live in me just to tell me what to do. This is why the, is we, when you start in any issue with the will of God, you have not started far, far enough back. The will of God is not the starting point. The character of God is the starting point. Because God cannot will what is contrary to his character. And many Christians, when you hear this subject being talked about or any other ethical subject, listen carefully. Most people are starting with what they believe to be God's will, and they are not starting with what they know to be God's character. That is the fallacy. And if we start with God's character, who will not break covenant with us, who will not marry another, To me, the issue's already settled. The second hurdle, or alp, is the Word of God. And as I've said, there are many passages that speak to this. And you can take the two exception clauses in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and interpret all the other passages based on those, interpret, those exception clauses. That seems backwards to me. Or you can take all those passages on divorce and remarriage and use those to interpret the two exception clauses. That's the way it should be. The clear passages used to handle the unclear passages. My point is simply that it is possible to handle God's word in such a way that there is no contradiction with God's character. And I would present to you that if we are handling God's word in such a way that permits divorce and remarriage when the first spouse has not died, then we are presenting a contradiction to the very character of God. And God's word can be handled so as not to present a contradiction to God's character. There is no doubt about that. And the third hurdle, the third out. Should you be able to argue that God does, in fact, in his own character, he is the kind of being who divorces and remarries, if you can present and make that case. If you can look at God's word and make the case that God does permit remarriage after divorce, there is a third out that has to be leaped over. Your wedding vows. Matthew 5, 33 to 37, Jesus very clearly says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything else is evil. And when two people stand before 
God and witnesses and say, for better, for worse, till death do us part. Jesus says, not to keep your word is evil. I see no way that Scripture permits us to renege on our vows. Even should Scripture permit divorce and remarriage, our vows don't. Even should God be the kind of person who divorces and remarries, and he is not, our vows say that we will not. Our vows say, as they should, until death do us part. And I would just, again, say, well, what do you do? Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And his ministry through us is not limited because of choices we've made. Assuming that we've come to him in brokenness, in repentance, and in humility. If you've been divorced, I would encourage you, based on the authority of God's word, remain single or be reconciled. If you cannot be reconciled, then you have to remain single. If you've been divorced and remarried, that second marriage is just as valid as the first one. And I know God does not want that second marriage to fail. And we should all be absolutely committed to seeing every marriage succeed. Understand, a homosexual marriage is not a marriage. Two unbelievers are married. We should be absolutely committed to seeing that marriage do well. A Christian's married to an unbeliever, we should want them to succeed. And whether it's the first marriage, second, third, or fourth, we want to have it succeed. And it is not wrong to ask for God's blessing. And God does give his blessing. We all know folks who say, it may be my third marriage, but it's the only one that's a godly marriage. I don't refute that. And I thank God for his grace. And for a marriage, whether it's second, third, or fourth, that reflects what is true of God. We confess, we ask forgiveness, and we stay married. God wants all marriage to succeed, and so should we. We thank God for the grace that he gives in whatever circumstances we're in whatever circumstances we're in. That's what the next chapter, next paragraph in this chapter is about, is God's grace in whatever circumstances we're in. And we thank God and live in the reality that he forgives. And as we draw near to him in our own brokenness, the sky is the limit with what God can do in and through us. And that is not dependent on marriage status. Praise God. Single, married, widowed, divorced, 
divorced and remarried. God's use of us is not dependent on our marital status. It is dependent on our coming before him with open hands and a humble heart, saying, Jesus, here I am. And it's amazing what God does through each of us. I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, your ways are good, and sadly they are not ours much of the time. And when your word says that your ways are not my ways, you didn't say that as a compliment, but as a rebuke. Lord Jesus, I do pray that we would walk humbly, that we would give grace and compassion and understanding, that we would not condemn where there is no condemnation, that we would also, Lord, walk in the truth, and that we would embrace what is true of you, and that the cry and longing of our hearts, God, would be nothing more than that you, O God, would make yourself known in us and bring us into conformity with yourself. Every thought taken captive to the obedience of Christ, every action being from you, not just us parroting you, but you, God, acting in us and through us, that you would be seen and that we would be walking in intimate fellowship with you. We live in a broken world and we are broken people. But you are the Redeemer. And Lord Jesus, we look to you to redeem in each of us. None of us are without that need for your supernatural resurrection power to be at work in each of us, to bring us into harmony with yourself in all aspects. So I thank you, O God, for your grace and for your love and for your mercy, which we are all in need of. In Jesus' name, amen.